Well, good morning, First Press. Really glad you are here to uh, worship with us this morning and to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and to hear from God's Word. Let's, uh, in fact, let's come together in prayer, shall we, before we do anything more. Let's pray. Gracious Holy God, we pray that you have um, been lifted up in our hearts and in our minds and in this church as we have sung praises to you this morning, as we have lifted ourselves up before you in prayer. And now, Lord, we also acknowledge that there are things that we are desperate to receive from you, things that only you can give to us, the promise of salvation, vision for life and truth and hope in your word, an understanding of how to proceed in a way that honors you and is good for us. Pray, Lord, that that would happen now as we come uh, to your word and its preaching. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be truly pleasing and acceptable to you. For you are our Lord, Rock, and Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, uh, my name is Eric Hansen. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are, as uh, Joe mentioned, smack dab in the middle of this series that we have been calling Play-Doh Hearts. And really what it is is a very fast, maybe even a too fast, of a walk through um, the life of uh, King David. David was a man who, from the very beginning, even before he was anointed, was recognized by God as one who's after God's own heart. And oftentimes when we hear that phrase, we make assumptions about what that must mean for what David's life was like. After all, he became a king. So it feels like oftentimes to us, when we think about that kind of relationship with, uh, with God, we assume maybe everything sort of just rolls downhill. There's good momentum. Life is, life is fairly easy. It's kind of filled with, like, blessing. Someone who um, is a man after God's own heart probably just goes from strength to strength to strength. But when we read the Bible, what we actually see is something quite different. That even though God, uh, David is celebrated as being one after God's own heart, he, he st- we still find that God continues to shape and mold him and allow him to be in really challenging and difficult circumstances. And, and what we've sought to say is that whatever it is you can do with this Play-Doh, you can sort of stretch it out, roll it, pound it, Like I said last week, I saw a couple people take their pencils and stab it. These are the kinds of things that actually God seeks to do to us. Not just to sort of punish us and pound us, but to actually shape us and mold us in the way that David was shaped and molded. And so, as sort of a devotional habit, even in the middle of our sermon today, feel free to grab some Play-Doh and just... Consider what it is that God might be doing to you and with you that represents the kinds of things you can do with Plato, even as you sit here. Today we'll be talking about this idea that God forges us, which is sort of a different kind of a metaphor. It's when you sort of take metal and you bend it, something that might be unwielding, but it needs heat and pressure and pounding to get itself into the shape that it needs to be. And we've called it that because we're going to be looking at this stage in David's life where he is, he's in the wilderness. Before we get there, if maybe you're not familiar with the life of King David, it's maybe helpful to remember some of the contours of his life and where he is in Israel's history. 
So for many generations after Israel had stepped into the promised land, um, they had a theocracy. They sought to be ruled by the Lord himself and uh, the voice of his prophet, which in this moment was a man named Samuel. And they cried out, we want to have a king like all of the other people that we see around us. Give us a king. And, and Samuel said, you don't really want a king. And they said, yes, we do. And they said, eventually the Lord said through Samuel, okay, if you want a king, I'll, I'm going to give you one. But the problem is, then you're going to have a king. They're like, right, we know. That's what we want. And it turns out it's been kind of a disaster. As you continue to read through the Old Testament, the very first king is a man named Saul, who uh, is both sort of gentle and generous of spirit and a total train wreck. And Samuel anoints him, and uh, he begins to rule. And through a set of circumstances that are part of a different sermon series, he loses his anointing. And as we learned last week, God uh, takes David and, and says, this is going to be my new king. He, he's one who's after God's own heart. This is the one. And, and he was kind of like the youngest, the sort of the least powerful, the least expected to be the ruler. And not too long after this part that we looked at last week, David is called up to the royal household, royal household to, to play music for Saul. Because Saul is now troubled of heart and mind, and music helps him to rest and relax. And while he's there, he finds himself beginning to grow in notoriety as a warrior. In fact, a little bit before that, he, um, he's the one who kills Goliath, this giant warrior of a man, of a, of a Philistine warrior. And through that, and through the kinds of skirmishes he's involved in, it, it turns out that David is getting more and more adulation, more and more praise is, is heaped on David. In fact, the nation starts singing this song that Saul has killed his hundreds, but David has killed his thousands. David, uh, pardon me, Saul feels kind of this reversal of power. He can feel the loss of what's, what's happening to his royal authority. And in his anger, he, he actually begins to accuse David of seeking to um, expel Saul from his kingship. So Saul throws a spear at him and accuses him of all sorts of um, violence and collusion and conspiracy. So David flees. Saul's in pursuit. David's been uh, fleeing and continues to flee. In fact, I encourage you to read this whole part in 1 Samuel, starting around verse, sorry, chapter 17 all the way through uh, 30-ish. And Saul's in pursuit, and he has to turn around to go take care of a Philistine problem, and then he comes back, and that's right where we are in this, in this part of the story with David. We seek to understand how does God want to shape us and mold us. It's fairly long, but if you brought your Bible, let me encourage you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. That's about 22 verses. Let's, uh, let's, um, let's, you can follow along as I read aloud. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, 
a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds so my hand will not touch you. Let's just stop there. David's been on the run for quite a while. He's got maybe he has 600 men with him, we learn elsewhere, and he's being pursued by 3,000 men um, that are with King Saul. And they can probably see the dust and these 3,000 men coming from probably quite a distance. And so they, they hide in this cave, way, way, way in the back. And what should come right up to them, right into their presence, is King Saul himself, who needs to take care of a little bit of some biological business. So he's disrobed to do that. And the men who are with David say, look, here's, here's the moment. Now's your chance. You, this is the promise. God's going to p- give them to your hands. Do what you want. Now what's interesting is we actually don't see that promise anywhere in the Bible. These men seem to be sort of operating on what seems like the... Um, well, the 8th century B.C. worldview. If you have a chance to do violence to your enemy, you should. They seem to really actually be operating on a, on a worldview that's not God's worldview. Take him. So da- David sort of crawls up, and he cuts off just a little corner of his robe. And, and the robe's important because it's symbolic. It's one of the symbols of, of royalty and of kingship. 
So it's not just sort of a harmless piece of clothing. David, this is why he's so stricken by it. He is saying, I'm claiming a piece of your kingship. I have a part of it. I have, I'm next. But he refuses to do what it is the men expect him to do, which is to slay the current king Saul right on the spot. He won't do it because it's God's anointed. That's not the way that God operates. In fact, it's so important to David, he says, no one is allowed to kill or touch or do violence to the king's anointed. Then Saul gets redressed. Apparently, it's not a very big chunk of clothing because he doesn't feel it, how much lighter his clothing is. Starts walking away, and David takes this big risk. And he comes out of the cave, maybe even climbs up a hill a little bit to be heard, and he calls out to Saul and says, Saul, what are you doing? Look what I could have done. Instead, I just took this. And he seeks and begins the work of trying to find some way to repair this misunderstanding. If we're going to continue to read, we would see that Saul says, I'm so sorry, you're totally right, you are going to be king. And they, they have this moment of reconciliation that may be important for us to think about, but we know in the Old Testament this particular story does not end in reconciliation. As we look into this passage, there are a couple of things that I want to point out to you that I just want to think about. One of them is this understanding of wilderness. The Bible is really clear that we are going to experience some wilderness. In fact, this theme of wilderness, of sort of being out in a dry place, of being exposed in a place where you feel isolated and alone or forgotten or parched or all those things, it's throughout the scriptures. It happens to Adam after he and Eve sin. It happens to Abram. Leave your life here and go find this country. I'm going to show you. It happens to Moses after he leaves Egypt for 40 years. He's isolated. And then it happens to all of Israel. They wander in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 more years. It happens to Jesus after he's baptized. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness for a time of refinement and of testing. We see in the Psalms, which are a lot of the Psalms are uh, David's uh, poems and prayers. We see that's actually pretty common in the Bible to, to ask, Why, Lord, why am I in this wilderness spot? Maybe you've even done that same thing. The Bible allows us to do that. The Bible points to a a people who are willing to sort of pour out all of their worries, frustrations, hurts angst, all of it onto the Lord. Able to do that. But what's interesting is the Bible also takes our wilderness experience at face value. You're going to go through it. It's going to happen. 
One commentator said, since it seems to happen to everyone that's in relationship with God, it seems to happen to everyone has some sort of a wilderness experience, we may as well study it to understand what might happen to us. We may as well seek to understand what, can actually, what takes place in the desert. What takes place in these moments when we find ourselves detached, separated, lost, or lonely. What will happen? And in every case, there's almost this, there's almost every time there's this implied question. What will happen to your character? Will you become more or less? Will you grow or will you regress while you find yourself in the wilderness? See, because King David and Jesus and Israel finally gets to the promised land, we're sort of, we sort of, I think, actually assume oftentimes that the wilderness is always going to end out in triumph and closer unity with God and with people who are around us. We almost always seem to assume that. But I want you to notice that this really is a story of two men who are in the wilderness. Yes, David's in the wilderness, but friends, so is Saul. He's troubled in heart and mind. He, he can feel his kingdom sort of slipping through his fingers. He, he knows that his family and his whole family line are at risk of being lost forever. People sing songs about David and not about him. And what happens to him when he finds himself in this desert place? What happens to this place when he feels estrangement, not only from the Lord's blessing, but also from other people? Well, one commentator says that um, he chooses the murderous glint. He chooses to look around him and take on the values and ethos of his world. Is that what you do? When you find yourself in isolation, especially I want to talk about sort of relational isolation, relational wilderness, do you find yourselves taking on sort of the, the values of, of um, today's world for how to resolve those things? What do you do when you're in the wilderness? I've, I've been there. I've shared with you even a couple of weeks ago in this pulpit that there, I'm kind of going through some sort of a wilderness now. Some sort of sense of isolation from the Lord. Now, I can tell you that just in these last couple of weeks, I feel like I can sort of see a horizon of oasis. Sometimes I've experienced um, the wilderness for about 12 minutes. I have allowed there to become, just very briefly, I've, I've said something or I've allowed something in my heart to become so agitated by something my wife said. It's not her fault, it's my fault. Or something I hear in a meeting. I get, I get instantly agitated, instantly sorry, I feel separated from, from both people who are around me and the Lord himself. And the thing that I've learned over this last week as I've delved into this passage is it's good to ask myself, in the middle of those moments, what am I becoming? 
When I find myself in this place where I feel separated, apart, lost, forgotten, what am I becoming? What should I be thinking about to make sure that I am becoming what I ought to become? And this is where I think sort of a longer, sort of slower meditation on David's life is probably warranted. I want to point out just two things in this brief little moment that we can learn from David. One of them is that he just decides to be royal. He decides to be royal. You see, it could have been, he could have taken that moment. You, you could always take that shot at your spouse. You could always say, say that thing back. You could always try to keep that uh, co-worker or supervisee down in, in some way. But, but David doesn't do that. He doesn't lash out. He takes on another view of what it means to become one of God's royal anointed. It turns out what he says is, I'm royal too. And when people treat me and they interact with me as a royal, there's a certain way I want to be treated. And it turns out I don't want to be killed in a cave. It turns out when I'm king, when I'm royal, when I am the one who is in this difficult spot, I, I want my people and the people around me to treat like the royalty that I am. And so it's going to start with me. I'm going to treat God's royal anointed the way that he ought to be treated even if everything else about the world says otherwise. David's been pursued, hunted down, trash-talked, but he refuses to act in kind. Kings don't do that. And what I want you to know, friends, maybe you've forgotten this really important biblical theological point. You are also royal. Through the, promise, through the promise of God the Father, um, David finds out that it's going to be his line, generations to come, that God's full and final anointed will come, Jesus Christ. And Jesus will show us what his kingdom is supposed to be like. And he'll be persecuted for it. He'll be in his own desert because of it in a number of places. And eventually he's going to hang on a cross, but the, the cross will not contain him. He will defeat death. And we now might have life because of Jesus Christ. And, and furthermore, the Bible says we are considered to be his sons and daughters. We are heirs of God's kingdom. We are royals. First Peter says that we are, we are now God's chosen. We are a, a holy and royal priesthood. That's who you are. You can choose to act out of that identity not the one that the world gives to you. You can decide to act in a royal way. To claim your identity and say, this is so important to me, this is how I will treat others. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He just has gone through all of these things about... Um, how, how it is he's blessed, who's blessed, and all those things. He says this, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, 
tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus says, because you're one of my royals, we can flip around how it actually is we act in these moments. We can flip it around, and it is so hard, isn't it? I'm going to get sort of real and personal for a minute. One of the places where I think it's the hardest for us to do this, to live with this kind of understanding, what it means to be royal, is in our own homes. We find a way to sort of keep it together for the entire day. We have like professional lives, we have committees we're part of, we volunteer places, we pitch in, we, we do all our stuff, and we we sort of like, for the most part, we sort of let, like, like sort of roll over us. And then we get home, and we're over it. And we treat our families, and our children, and our spouses in embarrassing ways. Because we've absorbed into our minds and our imaginations a worldview that's not the Lord's. I know a family where there are two sisters that have not spoken to each other, sisters that have not spoken to each other for four years, waiting for the other to make it right. I know a family where one spouse has been withholding physical affection and intimacy from the other spouse to get her way. Months and years without a loving touch from a spouse. What's meant to me, God's blessing, has become a weapon. More commonly, maybe you've even heard this, we, we, um, we judge other people when they say things to us by tone, and we expect them to just uh, accept whatever it is we've said if you just look at the words on the page. I'll give you a, a, an example that I've used in the past. I did it yesterday, actually. Uh, you know, Amy will say, or people will say, or I'll just hear, maybe it might be time to clean the garage. Right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Look at all these things I've been doing. I've done this. I hung this thing. I did this thing. I've been doing this thing. I drive this thing. I have all these other things I've been doing. What do you mean? Clean the garage. How dare you? And he's like, I, I literally just said maybe it's time to clean the garage. <laughs> See, because I hear tone that might not even be there. I hear the accusation. And so I fight with tone and not the words. And I expect, Amy, maybe I've said something really dismissive, and I, he's like, no, actually, Amy, I just said, could you please do that? She's like, no, you didn't. Do you know that? Do you do that? Do you fight with tone? See, it's very hard, I think, for us to actually seek the kind of life that that David is here if we're not actually spending significant time as a royal, remembering who we are, remembering what's actually at risk. 
when I am at one with the king of the universe, I'm not so worried about tone. If I'm a fully settled person in Jesus Christ, learning to know and trust and follow him, I feel much less inclined to yell at the person who thoughtlessly, like, cuts me off on the road. David, in this moment, is he's a royal. He's embraced his identity so fully, he, he finds himself less troubled by the circumstances that oftentimes we are. We want to lash back. David does not. In the middle of his wilderness experience, what he actually has found is, is a deeper and deeper abiding love for God. In fact, one that allows him to see God's anointed, to see Saul, not as an enemy, but one that God has made. When's the last time you're in the middle of a fight? It's like, gosh, that person's amazing because God made them. That seems to be part of what David's done here. Saul is amazing. God's anointed him. He's one of God's special possessions. Let's start there. The other thing I want to briefly talk about is this idea that as we find ourselves in the wilderness, as we seek to sort of live in the ways that are positive examples from David, that probably we should abolish what about ism. Abolish what about ism. And instead brace, embrace reconciliation. Do you know what about you know what, what aboutism is? Probably have heard it. It's a time when you tell your son to stop hitting your sister. He's like, yeah, but what about the time she kicked me? It might be the time when um, you have, uh, someone else has, has asked you to take out the garbage. You're like, yeah, but um, when are you going to get to the laundry? We sort of take these things and we sort of deflect. It's like, I'm not going to go first. How many of you right now are standing in a place of relational hardship, and you're waiting for the other to go first. It's like, I'm not gonna. Well, friends, you are royal. Go ahead and be first. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, here's a really interesting thing about that passage, that forgive as the Lord forgave you. A lot of times we sit and we stew in our relational separation and our pain and our anxiety. We're like, yes, I will forgive the Lord as I have been forgiven as soon as they say I'm sorry. They're gonna, they have to go first. But that is not what the Bible says. David takes a real risk when he comes out of the cave. Probably all the men around him are wondering, what in the world are you? There's 3,000 of them. They're going to come back. But David takes the risk of reconciliation. He climbs out of the cave. Maybe, like I said, some people think he sort of climbed up above it to be heard. And he yells out to Saul. He doesn't wait for Saul to come back to him and say, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry I threw that sword at you and I'm trying to kill you. He doesn't wait. Are you waiting? 
Are you right now in some sort of a relational desert? Some sort of a rift with a family member, with a spouse, with a friend? And you say, you know what? I'm just going to wait. They have to start. They have to solve it. They have to come to me. But friends, that's not the royal way. Are you in a desert and wilderness right now? And you're waiting for them to make the first move? Praise the Lord that God doesn't do that with us. That's the gospel. The gospel that is in the middle of our division and in our wilderness. God didn't wait for us, but he actually came to us that we might know full relationship with him. And as a royal, friends, you are now invited to do the same thing for those who are estranged from you and from whom you are estranged. You take the first step. Go ahead and do it. This is what we learn about how God shapes and molds and forges hearts made after him. They embrace their identity and they make the first step. Maybe you can later on uh, today, you can open up your Bible and take sort of a, a deeper look at the way David actually constructs this moment of seeking reconciliation. The first thing he does is he recognizes how amazing Saul is. Do you notice this? He bows down and makes himself prostrate. When was the last time you did that with your spouse? Bowed down to them, laid prostrate, and said, you are an amazing creature of the Lord. You are so incredible. I love you so much. You are part of God's plan for me and those that are around me. Does that sound familiar to you? I haven't done that very, I haven't done that very often, have I? Ever, she said. I've never done that. Okay. Because <laughs> she would remember. That's pretty amazing. What David does here is he acknowledges the deep worth of the person with whom he is estranged. He says, you are so worthy of honor. And I've been, I don't know, I mean, I think I can say this about myself. When I'm estranged from someone, I've been missing it. I've thought of you as my enemy. I've thought of you in this moment as the thing that needs to get fixed. And I'm going to start now in this way where I, with all tenderness, try to find a way to say, God has blessed you in a way that I have not recognized. I could very well be at wrong. In fact, I, I could be the entire wrong. And then David goes from that spot. He begins to say, I, can we have a, an actual, this is, you know, shouted across a canyon type thing. So we need to talk about what's actually happening here. I want you to know I could have claimed your life. I could have played what about-ism. But I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to sort of take the initiative and seek reconciliation because I'm one of God's own too. And they have this sort of shouting back and forth, and they, they agree to some new understandings. That's what God wants to do when he forges hearts in the wilderness. 
He actually wants to see you reconciled. So just as, uh, as we wrap up here, I'm just going to ask you, I want you to think about a relationship that actually needs this. Second Corinthians reminds us that we have a ministry of reconciliation. I, I want you to think about a, a division, a wilderness that you have between you and someone else. Do you know what it is? In the first service, there are a couple of people who like looked down because they didn't want me to make eye contact with them because they know. They know. They don't want to deal with it. Do you know where it is that you have found yourself estranged in, in the wilderness between you and someone else? What if you decided this week to take these little steps, honor them, talk about whatever's bothering you, and begin to work on a resolution? What if you took those three simple little steps and begin to find a new way forward where you can be reconciled? Now, here's the thing that I want to say. This happens in 22 verses in the Bible. It might take you 22 months or longer to resolve some of the things that are going on in your life. Some of the stories of the deep hurt and sense of separation that have happened in marriages are not going to be fixed overnight. They're not going to be fixed in 22 sentences. They're going to take time. In fact, they might even require a therapist or a counselor to walk through some of these really intensely difficult things. But what we learn from David is, is now's the time. Now's the time to be royal, to, to forget about what aboutism and address it. Start today, start this week. Pick up the phone. Call your sister. Be honest about the hurt with your spouse. Get help. Confront the, the challenge of tone versus words. The relationships can repair. So what do you got? What's your desert? What's your wilderness? What's your division? Follow the example of Paul and have, or pardon me, of David and have your heart forged by Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Gracious, holy, loving God, you have claimed us as your own. And it's also very clear that we are in the midst of difficult and hurt circumstances, things that have not been resolved for years or maybe not even since yesterday. I pray, Lord, that you would forge and shape our hearts, that we might seek a new way forward. Would your Holy Spirit descend on the people in this room. 
Would you dive into every corner and dark space where whataboutism lurks and give them the courage to seek reconciliation, that they would claim the mantle of being one of God's royals? This will take deep and courageous work, God. Would you lead us in it for our sake and for the sake of your kingdom? And all God's people said, Amen.